Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. I'm happy to welcome back to Talk of the Towns uh, author, journalist Doug Rooks. Uh, Doug, um, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Delighted to be here. I was driving east this morning, and I said, you know, if you can drive east in Maine and the sun is coming up, it's going to be a good day. That's great. And and the, the, the sun is very helpful in, in um, kind of um, giving us hope for the future. It is. So, um, Doug, you've, you've been a journalist for uh, many years, um, written a wonderful book about uh, George Mitchell. Um, tell us a little bit what led you to, to, um, to write this latest book about the Democratic Party. Well, you know, it really it, – there were two things, really. One, it grew out of the Mitchell book because mm-hmm. I was fascinated by where George Mitchell came from. He seems like such an unlikely politician. Mm. And the fact that he literally had not really thought about politics until he was 29 years old and got a call from Ed Muskie's office offering him a job was very interesting to me because, you know, most, most people in politics are there from their teenage years. And George Mitchell really wasn't. But he came in and then he was supported – by not just Ed Muskie, but a wonderful cast of characters in the party. They really helped people like George uh, become the politicians they were later. And I realized we don't have that anymore. So then I wanted to go back and find out how they did it at one time and then what's happened to us since then and then perhaps – as we'll get to in the latter part, you know, what we might do next. Mm. Uh, remind us um, all to give us that little um, history lesson about the origins of the Democratic Party and, and really it goes back to to uh, Maine as a state, uh, the Missouri Compromise Yes, what was going on then. Well, that, that was a very turbulent period for national politics as well. Um, you know, we had uh, – when we started to have parties, uh, Washington was above – politics, and a lot of people would like us to go back there, but that, I don't think it really works in this country. Anyway, we've had two parties. We've had what is now the Democratic Party, which has a lineage right back to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it was called the Republican Party then, very confusingly at the beginning, so we tend to you know, just call it the Democratic Party. But it was Jeffersonian, uh, certainly, and it was the leading party of Maine at the time of statehood as well. And that's one of the reasons why we got to leave Massachusetts. They were Federalist, 
the original other party, and and the District of Maine was increasingly Jeffersonian, and they were kind of worried that they would start losing elections. So it was easier to offload Maine and keep the Federalist you know thing going for another ten years, which they did. They were the last Federalist party in the country, and then they died out, and they were replaced by the Whigs, and the Whigs were an odd collection of different people, and they died out uh, under the pressure of the coming Civil War, and of course, famously. The Republicans were founded and they found Abraham Lincoln as their candidate. So that's the modern two-party system. But in Maine, um, essentially the Jeffersonians continued to dominate politics for quite a while, almost up to the Civil War. But because Maine was an abolitionist state, not just a anti-slavery state, really abolitionism was stronger in Maine than almost anywhere else, um, the Democratic Party just cracked up over that. And they split literally in the election of 1860 into two northern and southern wings. So at that point, the Republicans became dominant in Maine and they remained dominant for 100 years mm. until – Ed Muskie showed up. Mm -hmm. Remind us of what Jeffersonian um, kind of philosophy was well, as, as a root. It was very – you know, one of the things that's confusing to people is the parties flipped over in a number of respects. Uh, more recently, the segregationist Democratic Southernist – Southern senators and representatives, of course, were just – moved to extinction by the Republicans who took over representing that point of view that's not terribly happy about racial equality. Mm -hmm. um, but earlier, it was really about the Civil War, clearly, um, that a lot of people had to choose sides anew, and they did. And the Democratic Party, um, which had always represented small business owners, particularly small farmers, it was very oriented toward rural communities. Hard to believe today when we look at the Democratic Party, which is more of an urban, um, educated, professionalized party. But back then, it really did represent the ordinary people. And we're talking about very ordinary people, mm -hmm. poor people, really. Right. So this this uh, dominance by the Republican Party, uh, state of Maine, for 100 years, um, were there cracks that uh, you saw as you began to write this book? Well, there were a couple of intervals when the Republicans were mostly feuding among themselves. The progressive era was one, um, but it was a very significant era because although the Democrats had a governor in both houses of the legislature for exactly two years, mm -hmm. uh, in 1911, in 1912, they pushed through amazing legislation like the constitutional amendment that created initiative and referendum, which, as we know, is very, very important today. It wasn't for a long time. It was mm -hmm. not even used much until the 70s. But suddenly it seems like the referendums are more important than the rest of government in Maine, which I'm not sure is a healthy condition. But, you know, they, they did that. And they also um, uh, – they in interestingly enough, in terms of the ranked choice voting debate, they introduced primary elections. And we sort of leave off the election parts and we just call them primaries. But they really were primary elections. In other words, the way you got to the general election, mm -hmm. the best candidates would win the primaries and then they would face off in the fall. And, you know, I'm giving myself away here. But I think that was a healthier process, mm -hmm. too, than what we have now. Mm -hmm. So the the uh, um, the origins of the modern um, kind of era um, started um, j just prior to um, Ed Muskie. Um, tell us about some of the, the people and the and the politics that you uh, discovered there. I left out one important part, but I realized there was the other little revival was with the New Deal. Okay. Um, essentially, it was odd that Ed Muskie arose, you know, 22 years after the New Deal. 
but there was a flurry. There was a, a governor, a Democratic governor from Lewiston named Louis Brand, who was reelected, the first Democrat to serve two terms in a, most of a century. But it didn't go anywhere. Uh, the Democrats in Maine were not organized, and that faded out rap- rather rapidly. It was only when Muskie arrived in 54 with his essential partner, Frank Coffin, who was the chairman of the Democratic Party, that we really got the party and thus the organization going. And mm-hmm. that's what changed things. The organization changed it. It wasn't candidates, mm-hmm. or at least not candidates alone. Who was Frank Coffin? Tell us. Frank Coffin um, is, is, is not a well-known political figure because he was a wonderful judge. Um, he had a, had a promising early political career. Uh, Muskie was elected governor in 54. In 56, Frank Coffin went to Congress and was the first congressman elected from the 2nd District in – in a long time as a Democrat. And he went to Washington, he was doing very well. And uh, there was a crisis when Muskie wanted him to run for governor and come back and he wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. So we elected another Democrat, um, Doc Clawson, the, another forgotten figure, and he died a year into office. So then Frank Coffin came back to run anyway for governor against John Reed, lost in the anti-Catholic backlash in 1960. And a few years later, he got um, Lyndon Johnson to appoint him to the Court of Appeals. So he was in Boston and that court, which is a wonderful circuit court. It's, it's the smallest of the circuits. It has done a lot of wonderful law. And he was a great judge for 40 years. Mm-hmm. But his political past was what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And, and what did he do to help organize the party? He just organized it. You know, he <laughs> – well, I mean, here's an example. Um, there were 123 – um, town and city committees when he got there. In the in the course of the year 1954, he organized or helped organize 183 more. So he more than doubled the number of party committees. And I never realized this all the years I was covering state policy, uh, politics, how important those local organizations are in towns that have them um, there, you know, the party does quite well. It, it it can recruit people for the legislature. It seems to be fine. And where those committees fall apart, even like Democratic towns like Waterville and to some extent Augusta kind of fall by the wayside. You have to have those things. Who knew? So Coffin knew that there were voters, Democratic voters in those towns, but they weren't in organized way. So no. you couldn't get the message out and then um, kind of feedback back to, to yes. the party. Exactly. I mean, there, there were no – the antennae today are Facebook. And mm-hmm. Facebook, frankly, is a very blunt instrument compared mm-hmm. to what the old party organizations were. Because people talked. They talked at the you know the hardware store downtown. They talked in their living rooms. They knew what was going on in the party. Today, people don't know. Mm-hmm. They don't. Right. They, really, they literally do not know what's going on. Is that um, purposeful or is that no. um, uh, I think a it's mistake. almost – well, you know, the Democratic Party in Maine became very successful. You look at the heyday of – and I, I identify the peak year as 1984. Uh, you know, it depends on what you pick, where the decline set in. And some people would date it earlier. Some people would date it later. But clearly there was a major decline in the fortunes of the Democratic Party. And I think it's inevitable in a two-party system that you get um, successful – you get a little comfortable. When you get too comfortable, somebody's going to come along and knock you off. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened initially. What's happening now is a little more systemic, in my view. That mm-hmm. that there are problems that 
are not going to be solved by this, that cyclical effect. We really got to go back and look at the way we organize today, which will, of course, be different than we did it in 1954, but the organization is absolutely essential. Mm. Tell us about Muskie. Let's go back and talk about Muskie. Uh, Muskie, Muskie is, 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 a, is a wonderful topic because he was a little like FDR. You know, FDR was really the founder of the modern Democratic Party. I won't say the contemporary Democratic Party because my feeling is that the contemporary Democratic Party nationally has kind of forgotten about Franklin Roosevelt. And we need to go back to him and get some lessons. But I am recommending that Mainers go back to Ed Muskie and how he did it. Because, you know, when he was elected governor, this is true, he was he was elected mostly with Republican votes because there were so few Democrats. Now, people say, how could that be? He just made much more sense. And he, ha- he was on the other side of that coin. He said, the big issue for him was simply having two-party government, having a choice, not having just the Republican get elected every fall. It was a powerful issue at the time. Mm-hmm. How did he How did he um, appear before voters? That was before um, a lot of television. There was probably yes. some, but uh, radio? Um, uh, he was it? good on radio, um, and, and television didn't – he was on that year for the first time. 1954 mm-hmm. was the first opportunity, and you could buy you know like a half an hour for $100. It was just <laughs> great. Um, and all the Democrats got on together. Now, Muskie was the commanding presence there, though. And you have to remember Ed Muskie physically. He was six feet four inches tall. He was a little Lincoln-esque. He had an unmistakable face, craggy features, and his voice was not the most powerful voice, but he projected to every corner of the room. And, you know, when he came in the room, you really noticed. Mm. He, he was just somebody that uh, stood out from the very beginning. And we found that is actually helpful in politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, as in his term with, with, as governor, what were some of the highlights of, of uh, what he did to kind of say, okay, the Democrats are a party to be reckoned with? Well, it's, his governorship is more of – I consider him kind of the, the John the Baptist to uh, Ken Curtis. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. To analogize, Muskie himself realized with the pow- the limited powers of the governor's office. I mean, really, the legislature was the big deal back then, not the governor. Um, he ironically helped made the governorship what it is today, mostly through constitutional amendments that he sponsored, but he was leaving at the time. One was for the four-year term of governor, very important. Vermont and New Hampshire don't have that. They never did that. We have a four-year term for governor, even though we're a small state, and he moved the September election that he won to November much bigger turnout in the presidential election. So it was harder to you know, win with a minority of the vote in September as the Republicans. But he realized he wasn't going to get a lot done. I mean, he had about two dozen House members and maybe three or four senators. You know, you're not going to really carry out a Democratic agenda. And that was really one reason he went to Washington. Also, his stated reason, which is definitely made sense is he didn't think he was going to be able to clean up the polluted rivers of Maine from Augusta. He mm. had to go to Washington, mm. and he went there, and he did it. Mm-hmm. So he set, kind of set the stage, as you, you said, uh, for Ken Curtis. It turned out. Of course, there was the false start with Doc Clawson, who frankly would not have been a muskie-like governor anyway, but he would have served four years. And we had to wait a few years for Ken Curtis um, to arise like a force of nature at the age of 35 to become governor. And he came from a small rural background. He came from Leeds and Curtis Corner, which is just up the road from where I live in West Gardner. And I go through Curtis Corner every now and they say, wow, you know, there's really nothing here. And there wasn't much there in Ken Curtis's <laughs> time either. Mm. And so t- tell us a, a little bit about uh, Ken Curtis's story. Well, Curtis is, is really, the, the, in some ways, the centerpiece of the book. Um, I really like Ken Curtis. Um, he is, to me, everything a governor should be. And I think, and he was more, quote, partisan than Muskie because he 
to some degree could be. He was also on the rising tide of the Johnson administration. That was very important. Johnson had preceded Curtis and really put a lot of tools into his hands, even things that we think, oh, well, that would have happened anyway, cabinet-style government. Um, the Johnson administration incentivized states doing that. They gave them more money if they had an organized Department of Health and Human Services to, mm-hmm. to send money to. Mm-hmm. They also encouraged um, – um, what was the other thing I was thinking that was particularly important that he did? Um, oh, the income tax. The income tax became deductible against the federal income tax as part of Johnson's programs. These little things that make a big difference long term. Mm-hmm. They're being turned the other way in the latest tax bill. Mm-hmm. Some people have noticed. You mm-hmm. know, now the income tax is not deductible, right. but uh, it should be, in my opinion. The, the the income tax was part of that um, era, wasn't it? Well, it was, and he needed a lot of Republicans to do it, and that's the other striking thing. Uh, Republicans were they weren't for all forms of government, and they weren't for all the programs the Democrats wanted. But for instance, the biggest backers of the university system were key Republican legislators, and they wanted that system to work and they knew they couldn't get the money without the income tax so uh-huh. they went for it. And what was the, the, the rough balance in, in those days in terms of the income well, versus uh, property tax versus – Well, the income was quite sm- – tax was pretty small at the beginning and then it grew because of course, well, income taxes do grow. That's the whole idea. As mm-hmm. the country becomes more prosperous, as the state becomes more prosperous and we have to remember that Maine was pretty prosperous under – uh, Curtis and Brennan and that the current stagnation began after that. Mm-hmm. I think that's very significant. We always say, well, that's not the cause. Well, in this case, maybe it was the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It turned out that building up state government was actually a good thing for this state and tearing it down has not been a great thing either, mm-hmm. which is something Democrats really should focus on. So Curtis's achievements, um, including um, support for the property tax and then the university system, are there others that you... The income tax, yeah. And, he's, and this is an issue that's always worked for Democrats and they stopped using it, uh, which is substituting a property tax is the tax that bears most harshly on Mainers because Mainers own their own homes. We are mm-hmm. the highest proportion of property of homeowners in the country. So even relatively poor people have homes and they pay taxes on them. It's really important. Ken Curtis and his successors realized that reducing property taxes by increasing state taxation, namely the income tax, but also the sales tax, was very popular with their voters. The Democrats have forgotten that too. You know, basically, and you look at sales versus income. Sales is a Republican tax. Income tax is a Democratic tax. So why do Democrats support cutting income taxes? Mm. It's a mm. question that they really need to think a little more about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the other figure that you've mentioned in terms of the rise of the Democratic Party is Joe Brennan. Well, Joe and Joe is part of um, – I don't know if he's listening today, but he's both part of the rise and the decline. Um what I hadn't appreciated before I did the research was what a good governor Joe Brennan really was. He served from 1978 to 86, a fairly turbulent time nationally. That was when the rise of Ronald Reagan was going on. So that arc was bending the other way nationally, and eventually it did here as well. But, but Brennan had a great cabinet. You know, it's so important to good government. You know, if I were if I were going to ask one question of the various candidates running around for governor, I say, who's going to be in your cabinet? Mm. And if you can't name individuals, tell me what you're looking for. It's so important to have good cabinets. I mean, Joe Brennan had the best, I think, the second best cabinet because you realize Ken Curtis 
didn't have a cabinet because he left it to his successors uh, because they created it, but it wasn't effective till he left office. Brennan was the best. I think the second best was definitely Angus King. A lot of very capable people. And, you know, the last two administrations, we have not had people of that caliber. And to me, that's why government has suffered the most. You have to have capable people to run your programs. You really do. What remind us of some of those Brennan appointees. Uh, Dick Berenger was part of that. Dick Berenger was, in fact, um, he, he was interesting because Berenger's uh, positions in state government, he came in as uh, Parks and Lands, I believe, for Curtis, and that was a creation of the Curtis administration. He then went on to be Commissioner of Conservation for Jim Longley, of all people, um, and that was a creation of the cabinet thing. And then he became State Planning Office Director for Joe Brennan, and that was something Curtis had created. So Curtis put in motion all of the essential tools for good government, in mm-hmm, my opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, where, where did Jim Longley come in? Well, Longley was kind of an interruption there because you, you had you – know, He was you, an independent. Well, he, he was sort of an independent, but we have to be straight about this. Jim Longley was a dyed-in-the-wool Lewiston Democrat. He had never been anything other than a Democrat, and then he – was picked unwisely, Curtis later concluded, to run his cost survey. You remember, inflation was just going through the roof. It was the only real period of inflation this country has experienced since the Civil War. I mean, it was amazing. Um, And people were panicking. And so Curtis had this commission, longly ran it, and Curtis made him promise he wouldn't run for office. Of course, you know, you really can't do that. So, of course, he runs for office. He changes his registration to independent and wins. The first governor anywhere to win as an independent since North Dakota in 1932. So Mm. there you go. So that created Jim Longley. But Longley's period was just weird because the legislature reassumed its role as the primary factor in governor. I mean, Longley was just this, he was seen as this kind of crazy guy who really didn't have very much interest in the business of government. Mm. So really, I would say those are 20 years when you really got to test out the theories that Muskie and, and, and Curtis had, you know, pronounced. And then you see if they worked. And in in my view, they did. Mm. So the balance between the legislature and the governor, you said, is is one of those things that shifts from time to time. Hugely. Shift, shift. Where are we now? Well, we, we, the, the big issue there is term limits for the legislature. Okay. And people misunderstand that. It's not about – they say, well, you know, four, four terms should be enough. It's enough for your average rank-and-file legislator, sure. I mean, you know, we don't lose much if, you know, somebody from East Oshkosh or I'm trying to come up with a town name sure. that won't offend someone, you know, serves four terms and doesn't serve a fifth. However, it has decimated the legislature's leadership. Uh, And the basic thing is you get into the House, particularly you can see this, in your second term. You've been in one term. You immediately have to go into the leadership track or a committee track. And I've always found the best leaders were those who already had chaired committees. But you can't do both. You either chair a committee, and committees, unfortunately, are not very important either because nobody trusts them anymore. They haven't developed the expertise and knowledge they need to effectively counter the lobbyist, CMP, whoever your favorite bully boy is. You know, you don't know enough to to really uh, figure out where these people game is and where you can go with your law writing Mm. to counter that. So the leaders are inexperienced, and they've got tough jobs. It's a really tough job to run the House of Representatives in particular. And I think term limits have really sapped the ability of the legislature to be a co-equal branch. Mm. I, it sounds dire, but I think it is. Mm. And I've seen it more and more in the last decade. I'll just remind listeners, because we have hardly taken a breath in the last 20 minutes, that we're t- you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're having a conversation with Douglas Rooks, who's written Rise, Decline, and Renewal, the Democratic Party in Maine, 
uh, published by Hamilton Books. And uh, in, a, in a little while, we'll welcome your phone calls as well. Uh, we've been talking about term limits. Um, term limits were part of the of the um, what, what you've described in the book to, led to the decline of the Democratic Party, and they were uh, at least in one version they were caused or, or um, the, the, they were supported because of a Democratic leader. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, John John Martin, uh, the former Speaker, but current member of the House of Representatives, is, I mean, everybody will agree that he is a polarizing figure. Mm. Um, some people think he was a pretty good young legislator. Other people don't like him even from the get-go. But, but whatever happened... Um, and this, and you know, he is why we have term limits. Although ironically, he was already on his way out when we voted for them in. Um, but he did. I, I would I would argue that he took the job of speaker, which is a, a relatively part time, short term thing, and turned it into it seemed like a life entitlement. He had been speaker for eighteen years, and you remember, no one had ever served as a presiding office for more than six years ever before mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So people didn't know what to do. He's elected from a small town in northern Maine, where they obviously love him because you know he brought home the bacon, you know all that stuff that's built up in Eagle Lake. He got there. Mm-hmm. I, 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 in self interest, you would vote for him if you're from Eagle Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you do when? Well, the obvious thing to do, he needed a caucus challenger. And no one ever stepped forward to do it. That would be the obvious way, and it does happen occasionally in Congress, not recently, unfortunately. But the caucus finally decides we're not getting good leadership. We need a new leader. Uh, that never happened with John Martin. We tried to rig the electoral system <laughs> to make sure that that he would not be able to keep doing it. And that was the the yeah. term limits. I mean, term limits. Yes. yes. And, and and again, it was the mistake was you know I would have supported. You know, I was opposed to term limits, the referendum at the time, just as I also um, you know have some qualms about other electoral reform measures that have come up from time to time since then. But that one in particular, the need was to limit the Speaker and the Senate President's length of term. That would have been very easy to do. You probably could have done that internally in the rules, particularly after Martin was on his way out after a ballot tampering scandal. And they did do that. It's in the rules still. Well, just put it into the law, repeal the rest of term limits. That's what I think could really restore some expertise, knowledge, and ability to the legislature. And then it would be a worthwhile job. So the, the, the momentum for term limits really came as a result of one particular figure, but yes. they, were, they were kind of galvanized by people saying, oh, we don't want professional politicians. Yeah, Is well, that right? It's, it's kind of I, – I, I have to offer the opinion here that that's kind of a ludicrous argument. I mean, look at what no, I understand. That, I know, but, but uh, I think that that's I, people were objecting to the notion of a politician being yes, a professional. Abs- absolutely, and that is a national. Well, that was a big national trend. There was a a well funded. I, I we we didn't dig into you know, like the Koch brothers and Archer Daniels Midland or whoever your favorite corporate interest you don't like entering politics. But clearly, there were a lot of important corporate backers of the term limits. U.S. term limits came and went, but it established term limits in a huge number of states. It, it was successful almost everywhere where you have initiative and referendum. Mm. If you don't have that, you don't have it. Mm-hmm. But it is in states that did that, except Massachusetts, where the Supreme Court found it unconstitutional, which is mm. very interesting. Mm. Ours did not. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other things that led, um, in your view, to the decline of the party? Well, I think you know, we touched on one earlier. You know, When Frank Coffin had built a very – we had party chairman uh, – I'd say when one six-year span, we had um, – um, Bill Hathaway, uh, Peter Kairos, and George Mitchell successively as party chairs. Now, just in party chairs, you had two U.S. senators, future, and a four-term congressman in that group. 
Um, today, I don't think very many people could tell you who the chair of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is. And I think that's crucial because, you know, the basic message of the book is parties, however much we dislike them, however much of a nuisance they are, we need them. Mm, because they prepare people for leadership. They do. And they can. They can do they that. They can, and they can, they can adjudicate a lot of the disputes that we now try to have out at the ballot box. You know, it, most primaries are not two good people running against each other. They tend to be grudge matches. Mm. You know, somebody really didn't like what somebody else did, so they'll run against them. That's not healthy. I mean, we need the primary elections to be, let's find the best candidate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what people want through ranked choice voting. Let's mm-hmm. find the best candidate. We can do that. I would argue. We have four parties in Maine. That ought to be enough to get some real choices on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Um, We're talking with Doug Rooks, and we'll open up our phone lines to see if you've got your own experience to share, um, your questions about the uh, rise, decline, and perhaps renewal of the Democratic Party in Maine. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. We've spoken about um, one independent uh, governor, um, Jim Longley. Um, Talk talk a little bit about the the role of independents in the last uh, 30 years. Independents are very interesting because, you know, what they really are is unenrolled, uh, meaning not part of a political party. That's that, And it's not just a technical term because when you look at independents, you have to ask, well, where did they actually come from? And there hardly – there is no independent party. Somebody was saying kind of in jest, but I think it might be an idea. Let's have an independent party. Mm-hmm. Everybody can join the independent party <laughs> and then let's see if they can get organized because – in fact, um, except for the first time Joe Brennan ran for governor in 78, all of the prominent independent candidates in every governor's race have been former Democrats. Often very recently former Democrats, as when Barbara Merrill resigned from the House where she was serving as a Democrat to enter the governor's race two days later. Hmm. I mean, it's just as an independent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a means of getting advantage in November but it really – I think it's confused the issue of who really is independent mm-hmm. um, because uh, in, in the Democratic Party, frankly, has been much more riven by schisms and feuds than the Republican Party in Maine is. They may still the – the Democrats still enroll more voters than the Republicans, but they don't function like a majority party at all mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's take a phone call. Um, David from Belfast, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Hi, yeah, this is a great show. I'm really uh, fascinated uh, by it all. I'm working in uh, Waldo County. Uh, I, I don't want to go down. A, I, I, I'm really excited about all the information about the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, I especially I was just taught I'm working on a, a campaign here in Waldo County. And Waldo County, uh, the Democrats. It's it just if you want to do a little research about Waldo County, it's uh, it's the history here and what we're doing. It's pretty exciting. But uh, the working working with the Democrats. Uh, so I I I just wanted to thank you um, for uh, for all your information. And I I think that the, I I I see a day when when, the, when we can get more organized in the Democratic Party here in Waldo County and and increasing our organization who was the um politician you mentioned that uh in like helped in, in massachusetts uh who was that that uh, just really organized party 
Uh, I think I was talking about Frank Coffin, who is oh. later a judge, uh, but he was actually from Lewiston. He came from a political – in fact, oh. his grandfather yeah. was the Speaker of the House in 1911 when they got all right. that great stuff done. So, right. yeah, Frank Coffin was uh, – he was a wonderful man. I never got to meet him. He died, unfortunately, yeah. before I could – but he, he left behind an enormous uh, corpus of writing, which I, I really yeah. um, got a lot out of. You know, you yeah, can so. see the strategy, not just the words. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah so I think the future bodes well. I think that Good. It's a, and the problem, one of the issues is that the Democratic Party has a huge umbrella. That, that yes. we, we, and, and when we get under it together, we really visit quite a variety of, 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 of uh, you know, different political uh, ways of thinking. But nevertheless, it, it, uh, it, it, can, it, it can work. So I really look forward to uh, more cooperation and uh, a building of the organization of the party. And I can Thank see you. in Waldo County that with when if we could get mm-hmm. organized better uh, right down into the town caucus, you know town, each town have a someone who's really in charge and really organize it well we we could do very well we david do thank better. thanks yes. so much for your call i had we, a, i had a quick comment there and and I think he's absolutely right. I mean, organization is the key, but we also have to remember about Democrats what Will Rogers said about us all those years ago mm-hmm. is that, you know, I belo- I belong to no organized party. I'm a Democrat. Right. So it's always going to be hard work, sure. but it's worthwhile. And we may, we may come back to the question of, of, of the, the, the rules that the, the party has put in place for good reason, but make it very difficult for uh, the average person to kind of get involved. Yes. But we'll take a call from Brooklyn, Maine, this morning. Uh, David from Brooklyn, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, thanks for the uh, discussion. I'm enjoying it. Um, I That uh, Will Rogers quote leads right into my concern, which is, uh, if you could give me a little bit of history of the balance in the Democratic Party as it's, uh, quote, evolved uh, between the populist impulse and the elitist impulse, hmm. which I think is a very controlling balance in the politics of today. I think the Republican Party is capturing the mantle of populist, as however you may wish to construe it, for the people of the people, uh, and the Democrats are taking the other. I wonder what the history of, the, of that is in, in state politics. Great. David, thanks for your call. We'll, we'll uh, get uh, Doug Rooks to comment on that. Thanks very much. This notion of, of the, 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 the balance, shift, yes. the balance. Well, I think it's, he's, he's, that's definitely one of the fault lines. I think you can see it more clearly at the national level between the Hillary and the Bernie supporters. But it exists everywhere. And um, there is a solution for it. And this one is not primarily organizational. I believe it's where you focus your uh, – what issues you care most about. And in the Democratic Party – you know, it's pretty. It's actually pretty simple. Economic issues unite us. Social issues divide us. Mm. You know, it, it's really striking that. And, and and the fact is, we're not emphasizing the economic issues. I mean, yes, we have a higher state minimum wage because somebody had a referendum. It's not anything the Democratic Party did. The national minimum wage is seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour, and I haven't heard a single Democrat, including Bernie Sanders, giving a speech about that lately. Mm. You know, those are the good issues for us. Um, you know, I absolutely believe right at this moment, historically, we have to deal with the gun issue. 
But again, that's not the strongest issue for the Democratic Party, nor are some of the other ones that get a lot of passions going. Um, we really need to think about the distribution of wealth and income in the society and how our government has abetted inequality in the last generation. It's a really important issue. And that's, to me, where we need to focus. Mm. Our caller has, has, has said that's an elites versus the populist um, kind of thing. Do, do you find that's the – is the Democratic Party elite these days? Well, you know, we, we worry about that. Uh, one of the prominent Democrats from an earlier era who ran for governor recently, Elliot Cutler, I think really did leave himself open to that. I mean when he came back to Maine from China to run for governor, um, you know, we hadn't seen him for a long time, but he's <laughs> running for governor now. And But I think what made a bigger impression on people was after he finished his second run for governor, he put his oceanfront estate on the market for, I think, $11 million. Um, you know, most people who used to vote Democratic cannot aspire to that. Now, it doesn't mean that a rich person can't lead the Democratic Party. I think there's a billionaire uh, who's the Democratic nominee in Illinois. Let's hope he's okay <laughs> as Democrats. But I think it's much harder. And I think the people from who are not in the elite side of the party have had a much harder time gaining traction and getting nominations than they should. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we need mill workers in the legislature. I really do. We used to have a, a woman who was a janitor at the Portland Press-Herald building, and she essentially, you know, ranked her boss, the, you know, the general manager. I like that, actually. I mm -hmm. think that's a healthy thing in a society that is supposed to be equal. Well, and, and Mike Michaud had that kind of support as in in his various roles, except when he ran for governor. Well, and, he, and, and that's, again, the troubling aspect. He took advice, I thought, from the National Party and tried to be something he was not. Mm. You know, Mike was a very blue-collar, down-to-earth, effective legislator. You know, he was in the shadow of John Martin, and then he emerged from it, and did, he did good things as Senate president. And I was expecting, you know, a good run when he ran for governor, and then I didn't hear any of that. Mm -hmm. You know, his the, the 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 places that he came from, the things he was good at, you didn't hear that anymore, and that was unfortunate because I don't think that that you know rerun of t 2010 was a very good test of whether Paul LePage really was the best person we could get for governor. Mike mm. was not himself. Right. Uh, again, listeners, if you'd like to participate in our conversation about um, the rise, decline, and perhaps renewal of the Democratic Party in Maine with our guest, uh, Doug Rooks, give us a call, one 625 9378 So we talked a little bit about um, the, um, the the rise and, and fall. Um, you've identified some things that aren't just Democratic Party issues, but perhaps um, state issues that we might consider as we look to the future. Let's talk about some of those. What, what, what comes to the top of the list for you? I think what I'm going to mention is actually Chapter 8, which is about Vermont. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a, uh, it's, it's a, bit of a change of, of tone in the book, but I think it was important. I wanted to look at a small state that we could, to some degree, identify with, like Vermont. Uh, New Hampshire is not a good example, uh, but Vermont is of a very effective Democratic Party organization that, believe it or not, how has spawned a third party, the Progressive Party, which actually works quite well with the Democratic Party. See, so they, they work in coalition when they need to. They, they do. And the reason is the electoral system. Mm -hmm. um, we had the Green Party, which arose in the 80s, really, but never was very effective. And it's pretty much you know, disappeared from the statewide scene. Uh, what happened? Well, th Vermont's electoral system essentially was additive. At the time these parties were organized, all of the votes you got – and you could run for more than one party nomination. Mm -hmm. New York is the only other state you can do that. 
I would. I think that would be a better thing to try than ranked choice voting, to be honest, because then libertarian votes and Republican votes could be added together, and in fact. It elected the first Democrat who'd won in 100 years in Vermont. He didn't get as many votes on the Democratic line as his Republican opponent did. But when you added up his other votes, he was elected. And I think – So how does that actually work? What what does it look like? I call it fusion politics. We have a divisive politics, meaning don't vote for a Green because you're going to split the vote and elect the Republican. Or don't vote for whoever the Independent is or because – and people don't like that. And I understand that. I don't like to have to vote for somebody else. I don't want to be governor or whatever because I feel like I have to vote strategically. But there are other solutions and you know, one of them is, is runoff, prim- runoff elections, which I don't think was really considered very thoroughly. That works in some places like in Lewiston and, and other places that we know. But I, I'm more intrigued by Vermont style, mm. what, I, what I call fusion politics. I don't think they use that word, but it brings the various political forces together to produce that majority that we all need to have confidence that this person really did represent the largest number of Mainers. Mm. We'll come back to the, um, Vermont as a possible um, model um, that we might draw from after we take a call from Ted in Bar Harbor. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, this is Ted. Um, I wanted to hear from Doug about the impact of unions and the diminishing uh, uh, influence of, of uh, politics these days and Great. how it affected the Democratic Party. Great question. Thanks so much for your call. one 625 9378 will put you into our conversation. Uh, Doug, how would you respond to that question about the role of unions? Well, this is a huge factor. I, I don't spend a lot of time on it. There's some vignettes and a little bit of discussion about you know the Jay strike, which really broke the paper mill Jay unions. Jay Main. Jay Main, yeah, <laughs> the, the international paper um, strike, uh, which was shocking at the time. I mean, no one ever expected a union to be decertified as a result of, of going out and doing the only things unions really can do to make sure that their economic rights are respected, which is to go on strike. Strikes are incredibly unpopular now, except maybe teacher strikes in Oklahoma and West Virginia, who would have thought. I think the balance has shifted so far against unions and working people that I think we're finally seeing a reaction. But it's dismay. I was just talking with somebody on the way up here about the fact that labor unions almost disappeared without our really noticing or caring a whole lot. And that, as a working person myself, you know, I wouldn't mind joining a writer's union if there was such a thing. Mm-hmm. But but um, we don't have those options anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, management is dominant in almost all phases of our economy. And, you know, uh, government can't do it all. I think we should have a more equitable tax system with higher marginal rates on very rich people. I absolutely do. But that won't solve the whole problem. The problem is really not just wages. It's also working conditions. When you go to work, can what you do be arbitrarily changed just because somebody three or four levels up from you in the company decides it should be done? There's no recourse. Um, and I think we misunderstood unions a little bit and maybe they also got a little bit too comfortable and you know, set in their ways. But, but I miss them. I well, really do. But, but the, the whole uh, workforce has changed. There aren't large um, industries, um, the shoe industry, the paper industry, um, even uh, elements of uh, ag production um, so that there aren't um, aggregates of people who can form unions anymore. Well, except that there are and we don't realize that either. For instance, McDonald's, Starbucks, the hotel chains, they all operate under a franchising op- arrangement where local people, quote, own the business. But they're obviously really national companies. Mm. And, you know, they tried to unionize Walmart and the National Labor Relations Board and, and really the state of labor law really militates against that. 
Um, I haven't heard much about you know labor law reform, but I think we ought to consider it, and maybe we could start it here. Mm. But because I think we still have the aggregations of people who need unions. What we don't have is the ability to get a union formed. Okay, we do not have that. Um, before we go back to Vermont, I'll list the, the phone numbers one more time: one eight six six. Six two five nine three seven eight. You've got some other lessons from Vermont that you bring out in, in, in your book called Rise, Decline, and Renewal, the Democratic Party in Maine. Um, you chose Vermont because it was small, but it seemed to have some effective ways in which to, to kind of uh, bring people up from their first experience yes. in Democratic Party to um, leadership. You know, absolutely. And, um, and some of the, the national figures we've had are very unlikely. Howard Dean ran for lieutenant governor. Uh, this is sort of the opposite of what happened in Maine, where a Republican Senate president succeeded a Democratic four-year governor in his first year in office. Um, Howard Dean got the job of governor because his predecessor, a very um, strong-willed Republican named Richard Snelling, died uh, unexpectedly. He just, you know, keeled over and died. And, mm. and Howard Dean was now governor. No one expected him to even run for another term. Instead, he served five terms, 10 years as governor, and uh, was probably the best most effective, I would, he would be like um, Ken Curtis in Maine's political history. It was a little later, but he had tough, tough issues to deal with. The Vermont Supreme Court handed him, it's well known, the, the sort of so-called gay marriage thing, where they had to figure out how to accommodate the, the human rights of same-sex people seeking to you know, have partnerships. So they got civil unions in Vermont. And of course, now, like everybody else, they have marriage. But that was a profoundly divisive thing. And it was only Dean's leadership uh, and earlier on a property tax funding for schools issue that got the state through that in one piece. It was very important to have leadership that was capable when those crises occurred. And to me, he's in some ways uh, a more interesting figure than Bernie Sanders, who, of course, came from somewhat outside the system. But again, they learned how to cooperate with Bernie. Bernie became an independent senator, and nobody was too worried about what he would do when he got elected. Mm. So this notion of a lieutenant governor, that's probably not not familiar to many people in Maine. Um, This could be people from different parties holding that position? Well, it depends on the state. Now, 43 states have lieutenant governors. Maine is really an outlier here. We've never really seriously considered doing it. So you have two two elections, one for governor, one for lieutenant governor, and they could be of opposite parties. They could be. And in Vermont, for instance, they often are because people sort of say— People like that balance. Well, we'll take a balance. In some states you run as a ticket, okay. and of course, like vice president, and then you don't. But I think in states that have both, it is an interesting, and generally in small states, the lieutenant governor is also the president of the Senate. Mm-hmm. So you, okay. you, you kind of combine the jobs. Um, that's never had a lot of uh, interest here, but it is, I think, a somewhat more manageable thing than the structure we have. You've mentioned that um, the uh, uh, earlier candidates, uh, uh, starting with with Ken Curtis, getting the the ability to create strong cabinets, um, that's declined. Where does it stand in Vermont? How do they work on cabinets? I, I have not gone into the intricacies. I, I interviewed a bunch of people, some old reporters, a couple of state senators, um, it to, so to get the lay of the land. Um, but I think you know they are they are a small state. I mean, they're only about half the population of Maine, but they are growing and prospering, and we're not. So mm-hmm. that's another thing about. I think having a good state government is a positive thing for everything, including the economy, which I know is not universally agreed to here, but I think it's true. I think the other thing about Vermont is they uh, they have very healthy competition uh, at all levels. Um, all of their offices that we 
appoint or have the legislature pick, like treasurer, even the auditor is elected statewide. So these people are well known to the voters already when they run for governor. There's kind of a talent pool. Now, I'm not sure that's worth, you know, and I propose in the book that we should elect the attorney general and the secretary of state, particularly those are important offices of executive functions that I believe should not be chosen by the legislature as they are now. But, um, you know, the, just the um, – I think so I think you'd get better government that way, but you'd also get people – because nobody knows what's training ground to run for governor. Mm-hmm. We have basically business and Congress, and I don't think either has served us particularly well. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. backgrounds do not seem to translate into good talent for the governorship. And we've mentioned the the, the notion of term limits. Um, people in the legislature don't really get enough time in that position yeah. to understand all of the nuance of, of government yeah. in Maine. But even without term limits, you have to realize that you know when you're a House member, you, you have 7,000 constituents. When you're a state senator, you have 36,000. As governor, you have 1.3 million. It's just too big a gap, and that's why I think – some other statewide office. Attorney General is the obvious one, but I think given our politics today, the Secretary of State, you know, you, we've had capable people in both those offices. I don't want to be misunderstood by saying there's something wrong with the right. people, but they don't have the independence and the stature that they would if they were elected statewide by the people. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that you think we should borrow from Vermont or that you've come up with um, from your years as a as a reporter and an observer of the state of Maine? Um, I think that would be enough from Vermont. In fact, okay. if, we did, if <laughs> sure. we did any of that stuff, I would be surprised. But but I do think we need to learn and, and, and look outside Maine. You know, Maine is wonderful and I've always loved Maine because we know who we are. Mm. You know, if you're a Mainer, you know exactly who I are. You know, I came from New Jersey, and nobody really understood what being a New Jerseyite or whatever they call them down there is. We do have that wonderful sense of cohesion and identification with our state, but sometimes I think we should look a little bit outside the state because there might be an idea or two that we could use. You've um, mentioned something that's somewhat arcane for some folks, and that's the whole process of how Maine puts together its state budget. Um, you see mm. some ways to reform that process. Well, you know, it's amazing. State, um, Ken Curtis got the legis- got the um, the Constitution, I believe, changed to have annual legislative sessions. But we've never had an annual budget, and it was kind of a gigantic screw-up because I guess they were trying to implement it in the middle of a two-year cycle, and it worked so badly that... <laughs> uh, that they dropped it, and then Jim Longley got elected, and you know mayhem occurred. And we've never gotten back to annual budgets, which every other state, I believe, well, New Hampshire doesn't have it, but New Hampshire is like their government is more primitive than ours, and, and, and particularly the <laughs> legislative side. I mean, four hundred House members, really? I mean, who who knows who these people are? No, I would not use New Hampshire as a model, but we don't have annual budgets, and I think that would provide a discipline that we lack. Really would. And, and also what's in the budget. I mean, we don't even talk about what's in the budget. Governors should be from day one saying, these are my spending priorities for the session. This is what we need to fund. And then you have a discussion about it. We do not do that. We wait around till June and say, what's in the budget? Sure, sure. Not a good system. Right. And and I think you, when you pointed to uh, people um, like Ken Curtis and Ed Muskie and Joe Brennan, there were conversations about those priorities that then translated yes. into budget. Absolutely. You know, we, we t- tend to think things as freestanding, like when the opioid crisis overtook us. And, you know, it didn't – it wasn't really – it didn't get enough publicity. And I, I admit to not realizing the size and seriousness of it myself. Um, 
But when it was obvious we needed to do something about it, that should have been an immediate priority for several cabinet people, um, certainly for the Appropriations Committee and leadership saying, how do we come up with a plan? What structural changes in state government in the way it delivers services do we need to fight this? And we didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. We're still sort of passing a few ballers here, like like the Trump administration has finally, you know, or Congress put some money into it. But, you know, money is alone, it's necessary, but it's not going to solve the problem. Well, it's, it seems like you're saying that we need strategies <laughs> in uh, place. Well, yeah. So we, be, we identify the yeah. issues, we, we need strategies, and we those do. strategies then translate into budgets. Yeah, I think people, you know, we, we were having that debate the other day. Is it are candidates more important or issues more important? Well, you know, they're both important. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, you can have the greatest ideas in the world, and if you have no presence with people, you're not going to get elected. But people who do get elected really ought to have thought a little bit about why they're running and what they're going to do if they get elected. And that's another neglected art of politics. We don't, we have not, we've lost the connections between elections and what elections are supposed to lead to. Mm. So um, there are lots of folks running uh, for office, um, many in the Democratic Party, but Republicans as well. Um, You, in the last part of your book, you talk about the future of Maine being um, not um, dire, but actually bright. And you talk about the university system, forestry, fisheries, agriculture, as as those are our, our roots, but they're also our future, you believe. You know, you look at the land mass of Maine and we have wonderful opportunities, but it's going to take hard work and time. You know, people want something to happen next month or next year. If you want to build anything substantial, particularly in terms of economic or or governmental infrastructure, it's going to take probably longer than a single administration. Um, the guy I happen to be working for at the moment describes an overnight success as something that takes five years. Mm. Um well, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but I know what he's driving at. We have to be patient. You know, we can't expect miracles because, you know, if you try something and don't follow through with it, public education is a great example. We've had more accountability measures in the last 25 years than I can count, <laughs> but they just pile up on top of each other, and we don't even know if the last set worked or not or they need to be revised and not replaced. So we're a little impatient with government, and we need to um, – but, you know, you look at rural Maine. I'm I'm kind of excited about particularly young – Young farmers coming to Maine. People really want to be here. We have a lot of great land. We have a great – we actually are getting a better growing season with global warming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there are techniques you can use to extend growing seasons anyway. They were pioneered by people like Elliot Coleman. There was a wonderful agriculture commissioner named Stuart Smith under Joe Brennan who were the prophets of this movement. And now it's actually happening. I think that's pretty cool. So we need to look at the forest products industry the same way. We could have seen the paper economy collapsing as it did. We didn't really do anything about it then. But now we've got all these trees. Trees are very valuable resources. They grow themselves. It's wonderful. (laughs) We don't have to manufacture them. So how do we use those to benefit the state and its people? I think it's kind of cool. Mm. And the investments in the University of Maine are something that you believe is really essential? Well, the university was started by Ken Curtis, and and, and Jim Lowell tried, tried to sabotage it. And Joe Brennan put it back on track with something. It's a very important report called the Visiting Committee, which Ed Muskie was on, but the Colby College president chaired it. I found that very significant. I think it would be great to have, you know, robust, powerful, financially powerful institutions like Colby, Bates, and Bowden, which some of us graduated from, working 
more closely with the state of Maine on these projects. You know, the university is great, and they're doing wonderful research work in Orono particularly, but also in Portland. But we need all of this intellectual community to come together in a way that that was symbolic of. I can't imagine today the Colby College president, um, you know, chairing a commission on public education, but I kind of wish that somebody like that would. Mm. You've mentioned um, tourism as as part of the mix, uh, both f- for people coming to Maine um, to look at um, wildlife and, and that sort of thing, but also agriculture. How does tourism fit into your vision of the future? Well, you look at Vermont, and people think of Vermont as a farming state, and it is. Uh, but Maine has a lot more land than Vermont, has a lot more arable land. I mean, we have – Vermont's mostly mountains when you come down to it. I mean, they're farming. Farmland is pretty marginal. We have much better farmland, but they have a better image for farming, and it's tied in with their tourism industry. The maple syrup industry was was invented in Vermont. I mean, it didn't just happen. They <laughs> invented it. In fact, a Republican governor helped do that. So, you know, we're going to have a lot of opportunities like that. You know, we talk about brands, and brands suggest just private economy. But I think a brand is bigger than that, and I think it should embrace at least the public sector as well. well are you excited about the, the reactions you've had to rise, decline, and renewal so far? What's, what's been happening out on the on the book tour circuit? I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the reaction. Um, it's it's sort of questioning and discussing, and that's exactly what I wanted. I, w- I really wanted with this book, this is not you know me pronouncing on what's going to happen or what should happen. It's trying to get a discussion going, and I'm interested. There are several groups that I never even knew existed that have invited me to come speak to them, and I think those are going to be the most fun. So you've got a, a program coming up tomorrow um, in, on uh, Saturday. Uh, at the Southwest Harbor Library at one o'clock, and then I know one thirty. One thirty, and then I know that you'll be um, at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor on the twenty sixth of April. So um, I hope that uh, those are well attended and you get some support. Any um, kind of hopes as you um, kind of do this book tour? It's the conversations you believe. I think it's, you've got to start, and people are having those conversations. I mean, you really see that there is so much more interest at party gatherings, but also just spontaneous demonstrations, the indivisible groups rising up. I think these are all healthy phenomenon. And and the big question for me, having seen what happened earlier with protest movements going not really as far as they should have, is whether we can now capture that energy and turn it into productive change you know, in the whole public sector, not just state government, clearly, because we haven't mentioned county and municipal government, but those are really, in some ways, more important. They employ more people. They potentially can do more. So, you know, all the way up, you know, if you were ever thinking of running for city council or selectmen, this might be a good year to try it. Great. Great. Well, we've come to the end of an hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of Maine Sea Grant. 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Karanak on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guest, Douglas Rooks, the author of Statesman, George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible in 2016, and most recently, Rise, Decline, and Renewal, the Democratic Party in Maine, published by Hamilton Books in 2018. Thanks to uh, our underwriters, thanks to our listeners who called in, and uh, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
Support for WERU comes from our listeners.